Hey everyone, welcome to, uh, this is the first ever episode of the Rugby Strength Coach Podcast. This is Keir, and in today's episode, we've got a good friend of mine from the London Wasps days. It's uh, Tom Farrow. So, thanks very much, Tom, for volunteering for the first episode. You're extremely brave. Um, Thank you for me. Oh, mate, cheers. Do you want to introduce yourself to people and kind of let them know how you got started in uh, rugby strength and conditioning? Yeah. So, um, I graduated from St. Mary's University three years ago um, with a first-class degree in strength and conditioning <laughs> science. Um, and I was lucky enough to get um, an internship at WASPs. Um, so, I did my intern year there. Was fortunate enough to then get taken on as a junior SNC coach and moved up to a senior position. Um, I left that position in the pre season of this year and now work part time there with the academy and then just do my private consultation stuff on the outside. Um, but I got into it uh, basically, I left school early, got a job in an office, absolutely hated it, and um, decided that I needed to go back to school and actually learn something I was interested in. So it's a bit of a long road back to qualifying for a degree and then getting my degree and then getting a job so it's worked out pretty well. Mate, I have to say this is a thing like you know I've, I've talked about you a lot recently when I was back in uh, in Europe doing those seminars on you know how to get a job within strength and conditioning and I kind of held you up as a great example of uh, one just like the kind of like the unorthodox way to to a career in strength and conditioning but also a great example of of doing work behind the scenes so you know like so many people think that you need to be getting an internship either whilst you're in university or straight out of university and um, you know you you can probably you know vouch for this that you see a lot of interns who come into professional sport who probably aren't ready for it and don't have the skill set or you know the knowledge to be in that environment and um, I thought it was a great example that you can still build a great career for yourself in S&C and probably even a better one by actually taking the time to, to get into it and maybe coming to it later in life. Yeah, I mean, I, it wasn't planned like that, but I think for everyone, having a break somewhere between school, um, say like after sixth form is probably best. You haven't got to do extra night school like I did, um, but after sixth form and then, you know, like taking a year out to go and work or even if it is travelling the world and as pretentious as it often seems when, you know, the people tend to do that, um, it's just a so much more to learn than the, than what's taught in schools and universities and it's important to go and see people and interact with people and see what works like and I think going back to university after being in a you know like a working environment in the city um, I just appreciated it so much and now I've got this obsession with learning which I definitely didn't have in school um, but I think it probably just comes from that appreciation of seeing what it can what it can give you really mate your your desire to learn is one of those things that actually makes me ashamed to be a coach because you know every every time we meet up or we speak you're like oh I've been reading this book been reading this book thinking about this and I'm like fuck I need need to work harder you remember every single thing you read oh well (laughs) I forget everything so it's no use got got a half decent memory Um, yeah like another another example I talked about I thought this was this was massive for me Um, seeing you and Connor do this at Wasps um I'm not sure if I've got the details 100% right, but basically what I told people around Christmas was that you know the best way to uh, to get an internship is to be so well known and, and liked and considered valuable by people in positions of influence that you know you get asked to, to interview or you get given the internship before the interview ever happens. And I think that was something definitely that Connor did well and also you had a, a good network that enabled you to get um, an internship position at Wasps. Is that right? Uh, I didn't really have a network. I I think I understood pretty early on while I was in uni that um, the, the fickleness of not just S&C but all industries and when people are looking at your CV, they're looking for something to stand out. Uh, it's a little bit different. So that's why I took the, you know, after the first year of uni, I went out to America for the summer. Um, as, like At the time, I was reading loads of uh, DeFranco stuff online, so I went and just trained with those guys for a month. Um, while I was out there, I went over to see Martin Rooney as well, and I didn't ask to go and you know like watch their training. I just said, Can I, I basically paid to train with them as an athlete, um, and then you know hung around the gym as much as I possibly could um, to to be around them and ask as many questions as I could while I was there. Um, so it was great learning from like guys like Mike Rodango, um, Jeff Carr, who was there, who was mainly I was mainly training with him, um, and 
just to see because it was very different to what I was learning in my first year of university. So first year of university was very much you know, the UKCA um, curriculum of Olympic lifting and things like that. We did six months of Olympic lifting and you know bicep curls with a devil and things like that. Um, <laughs> and then you go over to DeFranco's and no one's Olympic lifting and we used to do like pump sets at the end of some of the uh, sessions and it was uh, these there was like absolute freaks over there. So it's just eye-opening to see that you know everything you're being taught isn't it isn't like that in real life. You know a lot of the athletes um, couldn't squat deep and they couldn't um, Olympic lift, so they were jumping. And it was very eye-opening to learn that so early on. Uh, but then I, in terms of yeah, getting an internship, that I realised that having things like being to America and you know work with different athletes stands out. And then um, another thing that worked in my favour was wrestling. In um, I got into it was actually after being in America that I came across these wrestlers and they were just unbelievable athletes. And so I thought I wanted to go and check it out in England. Went to my first session, got um, absolutely dominated by someone who was a lot smaller than me. Uh, decided I need to learn that and need to know this, so started wrestling, and then all of a sudden it became very popular in rugby. You know, it's funny that like, it's funny you mentioned that because definitely coming to for me coming to the NRL and working with with the Roosters, you see definitely in league what a massive component of the game the contact skills are and how much improving your ability in that area can can have a knock on effect elsewhere in the game. You know, if you're if you're good at the contact area, you're going to save energy. It gives you more time to organise and defence, and I think yeah, if you if you definitely if you look at the stats for the NRL, the team that wins the grand final is the team that's best in defence, no question. And also from a pro- professional perspective, I've spoken to wrestle guys within that league, and as a specialist, you, you're getting paid so much more than a generalist. I've heard of some numbers being thrown around of like a thousand bucks a day to to be a wrestle consultant for a for a top flight um, NRL club. I think yeah. that's something you've done well. Definitely been a, a specialist. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, it, I find it really interesting. Actually, it's so popular in a league, um, and it's not yet in union because I think union is such a more open game that there's actually more application for it in union. Um, but I think league, obviously, once a few people start doing it, then everyone catches on. I think the same thing will be the case eventually in rugby union. It'll just take a while to keep off. Um, but yeah, that worked really well for me. The um, having that like teams were looking at me as an intern and I wasn't just offering you know the, the usual package I was offering something a little bit different and they, they could actually learn from me something so that definitely worked in my favour I think in terms of getting my foot through the door that's that's great though like the the mindset that you had I think is really important because I've I'd been there a couple of years at that club before you came in and obviously you, you see a lot of interns come and go and almost get nothing from the experience because they're they're in that kind of intern mindset where their job is to get out kit and, and put it away and do the piss test and stuff like that. But I don't know how you were, but when I did my internship, my kind of mindset was that, you know, I am an intern, but I'm in my mind, I'm an unpaid coach and I'm going to try and try and develop as a coach and make sure that I'm adding value to the team. And hopefully I'm leaving a legacy. If I do leave, I'm going to be leaving a positive legacy. Yeah. And I, I definitely did have that mindset. And I think if it was an environment where, um, it was, you know, just like putting out cones and not getting much back from it. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have put up with it for very long because I am so hell-bent on learning and developing that I would realise quite quickly that wasn't doing any favours for me. And I did actually have that experience while I was at uni and a few other places, so I, I sort of knew what I wasn't looking for. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't just me. It was Dan Howes really set, set that um, standard of, uh, that we were... Because before we were coming in, the culture was that the interns were referred to as hobbits and they basically just put out cones and done the shit jobs. And then uh, obviously didn't get anything from that. But Dan House came in, uh, really changed the culture. We were, you know, our title was junior SSC coach first off. So we spent two years as junior SSC coaches, but the first year we weren't paid for it. We paid very little. Um, but because of him and how he set out to have that culture, we were both able to thrive and we were thrown in the deep end like straight away. Like the third day in, I was one of the, one, the full team at Bishop Avenue in front of uh, all these EIS coaches as well. So it was definitely a moment where you sort of had to just be like, you know, put your put your brave face on and act like you knew what you were doing. Um, <laughs> act as if. But, yeah, act as if and they'll believe you. But then that, from that, because, you know, I used a bit of wrestling in the, um, in the warm-up there and then the... Uh, 
know, rowing guys at Bisham Abbey then asked me to go back and do some stuff with their gold medal rowers. So I was actually able to work with some uh, Olympic gold medalists pretty early on, which is pretty cool. And once once um, it's on the CV, they can never take it away from you, can they? That's it, it's yours. <laughs> that was uh, that was the deal with me going to Argentina. Like the the initial the initial trip out there was I was I was cover for somebody else doing the job, and uh, they said to me, "Well, you could be here a week, you could be here twelve weeks, and there might not be anything at the end of it." And I was like, well, "Fuck it, I'll do it." Once it's on my CV, they can't take it away from me. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you you probably in those situations you you do have all the knowledge. You've got all the um, you you've done all your everything that built up to be there it's just believing in yourself at that time and you know just backing yourself really and if you if you can't do it you'll get found out pretty quickly and you'll be out the door but um, if you can do it hopefully they'll keep you around yeah well listen mate like you, you kind of touched on it already that with with regard to the, the traditional kind of UKSCA model of you know you have to do Olympic lifts and you have to do this and you have to do that you've, you've definitely kind of broken the model and I was pleasantly surprised when we first met you know your your philosophies is how is it purely from the trip to America that you've kind of arrived at that philosophy, or have you have you made a conscious effort to to try and distance yourself from the the traditional way of doing things? Um, I think I do like to break the rules that I that are set to me. I like to look at things and what can I do? How can I do this best possible? And I sort of always want to challenge what's being done before I accept accept it. But also, um, the Olympic lifting thing was more my personal experience before anything else. Um, Same. And it happened before I came, um, before I went to America. So the first six months say, of the degree, we um, we did Olympic lifting, which I think is great. Like you, you should learn, you should be able to Olympic lift as a coach. It's like you should know how to do that. So having that on the course, and it's yeah, I think it makes complete sense for that. Um, but it was definitely put across that it was, you know, fundamental sports performance, which I didn't agree with. And then um, from six months of doing it, I actually spent, I was playing rugby at the time, so I spent six months not playing rugby because I'd injured my wrists and elbows doing so much Olympic lifting. <laughs> um, so I immediately had this negative, you know, connotation with it um, based on my personal experience. Um, and that, well, if that's what it gave me, you know, I can't go along to an athlete, especially a rugby player, and then, then not be able to play because I've done Olympic lifting with them. Um, and I'd also see um, some of the like the second year students used to work with uh, the uh, TAS athletes, would be like the developing athletes in the Olympic program. So they'd be like um, these 15, 16 year old prodigy sort of thing. And um, they'd, they'd be seem to me spending like, hour, like an hour working on Olympic lifting technique with a broomstick, which you could argue that younger athletes, they should learn that sort of technical stuff then rather than later, but I just thought it was like, they're not developing, you know, you're not developing their power, their strength, anything. With they're that. not getting you're a training effect. Olympic lift, and it's a completely different sport, and it has, you know, like gym in general has very little carryover to most sports, so, you know, spending so much time towards Olympic lifting technique just didn't seem to make sense to me. And then being over in America and just seeing that, you know, it didn't have to be done like that. And the guys over there were super powerful and they, they generally weren't exposed to it. Well, you've touched on something uh, which is most people will see as controversial within SNC is that traditional gym programs don't actually have much carryover to the field of play beyond the first couple of years of training. So we just kind of talking about an outline of what we're going to talk about today. You said you spoke to a colleague at um, St. Mary's and we, we both touched on the fact that strength is massively overemphasized within uh, S&C and, and rugby as well. And just can, yeah. you, can you touch on that and kind of explain why that's the case? Well, um, it's a thing of diminishing demands, isn't it? Um, fundamentally, when someone's fairly undertrained, you're going to have a response from anything they do. And, um, Strength seems to be this end of the line focus for SNC coaches primarily. I, I see this, uh, it comes up in conversation with some SNC coaches I see working or maybe speak to, and it's just a straight coach who's, oh yeah, they're not strong enough. And they'll be referring to a guy who's like incredibly explosive in the field, um, moves pretty well. Like it happened with um, a guy who was, um, he was a young, he's a young athlete, he was 17, 18, and um, I mean, in some ways, he probably wasn't strong enough in certain things, but he was a you know long jumper, um, high jumper as well. So he's an incredibly explosive guy, and um, yeah, the, the just straight go-to was you're not strong enough. And 
it's so limiting because, like you say, sport is not about strength. Like it's not slow grinding movements unless you are doing powerlifting and um, or, or you're in a scrum as a prop. I, I would say you know, yeah, the prop's yeah, one of those yeah, few positions. You know, strength like hold that contraction, grind it out. It's massively important to those guys, and and it's important. Strength is massively important, but it's just a part of the picture. And I think as S and C coaches, you should all be very open to the idea that it's a much bigger picture than just strength. Absolutely, I think like within the first couple of years of training, it, training strength for strength's sake is, is useful, but then beyond that, um, it's, it's purely a foundation with which to develop other abilities. Like I think it does make it easier to make an athlete um, powerful or fast if they're strong, but to, yeah, to, to train a program and see the athlete get stronger and then pat yourself on the back and say, well, their performance has improved, I think it's a bit of a misnomer. And especially with, um, there was a great uh, interview that Brett Contreras put up on his website recently, did, did you see it? it was with um, a French sprint researcher, JB Marin? Um, no, but I've read the um, that Marin's the, uh, the, the paper he did about um, what's his face, the sprinter, the French sprinter. Lemaitre, yeah, on the, the yeah, non-motorized treadmill. Fact, I actually think I have read the article. If you talk about it, I probably know. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the big thing that came away from for me from this was that they, they did a study with, you know, great for us, elite male rugby union players. And there was no significant correlation whatsoever between um, vertical jumping ability and sprint speed over 30 meters. And there was no relationship between um, uh, peak power in a jump or anything like that with actual sprint uh, speed. And the reason for that was obviously, you know, in those particular athletes, um, there's ceased to be transfer from, you know, a, a typical gym program to the field of play. And if you think about within that, that traditional UKSCA model, what are people focusing on as the, the holy grail of sports performance? Um, clean and jerk and the snatch. What are they going to have a massive effect on? Vertical jump. And yet we can pat ourselves on the back and say job well done. But apparently from, from this research, it suggests that maybe it's not actually going to have an, an effect on improving performance. Yeah. And it's like, you know, the Russians were there many years before us, weren't they? And they, you know, they had it down to like, very specific detail in terms of focusing on the importance of um, the sports movement rather than just basic movements and how you have to and like yeah they are the foundation and like you say you're going to get people it's easy to make someone more powerful when they've got that foundation essentially because they can move in a safe manner and that's what that is obviously what you're looking for first like not to injure someone is the key you cannot break someone and um, strength is a big part of that but in rugby, especially especially in elite rugby, you know, there's some very very strong guys out there who are still just grinding away in strength, and they'd be getting a lot more from a more specific movements, but um, in terms of like dynamics, but then in terms of the, the speed of movement as well, that they'd be getting a lot more from that than just grinding out strength nonstop. One hundred percent. Well, I would say you know about um, specificity. You mentioned that the movement is probably the most important thing. I I will say you know if anyone's listening to this and wants to to try and develop their understanding of that is not to fall into the trap of if it looks similar, it must be specific because there's certain criteria that you have to fulfill, you know? So for example, I've seen, I've watched a a guy train cricket players before and he had this guy on a cable machine with like two and a half kilos mimicking a bowling action. And that was a specific exercise for him. I would say I would, I would probably politely disagree with that, but I definitely think you're, uh, you're onto something there. Yeah. One of my big things, uh, my beliefs as an SNC coach is you are looking to develop the maximum outputs so then that can transfer into their field of play. So you need to develop the general maximal outputs, but then the specific maximal outputs might refer to you know the type of muscle action they're doing or the way the speed of the muscle action. And you know, when I think like what you're referring to there is when people just go straight on oh, it's got to look like this thing and then we're gonna add a little bit of weight to it and in some cases that is actually that can be quite effective but um it's so much more complex and it's much more to do with like the, the muscular physiology that's happening within the movement um than it is just here's here's a movement that looks roughly similar yeah. and i think that that can lead into you know like discussions on um trying to make this like train the sport to look like the sport that the, the whole program to look as much like the sport as possible um and you know like charlie francis talked loads about this and just training the middle and not the, the maximum outputs. Um, I think if you take it to its extreme, say for rugby, then you could just carry on playing more rugby. 
and uh, then you're not going to get any stronger, you're not going to get faster, you're not going to be any more powerful. So. Absolutely. I mean, like, you know, the whole reason that we have a job is that obviously playing the sport by itself is not sufficient to reach the elite levels of the game. And I think, you know, I've, I've put up a blog post about a conversation we had about this, about the idea of developing um, just general maximal outputs versus trying to replicate the demands of the game. And the yeah. the kind of conclusion that I drew from our conversation was that it's it's not one or the other. You actually have to do both. It, it's not sufficient yeah. just to be the biggest, strongest, fastest guy, um, nor is it just sufficient to be the most well-practiced guy. You have to you know, improve those outputs and then learn how to express them in the most effective manner possible on the field. Yeah. Um, another, this uh, leads into something that I read an interesting article by David Joyce, who's the performance director at Western Force. I had dinner with him the other day. Very nice guy. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so maybe you can tell me a bit more about this, because um, I know you was over in China a little bit as well, so I'm not sure if you saw any of this, um, but he was talking about how China's focus within the Olympic programs on skill and, you know, this Western focus on just power and force, um, whereas everything they do is towards improving the skill. And he said, obviously, it's a high attrition rate in that program. Um, but the, he said, as an SSC coach, he was basically training them to be able to enjoy training because the divers, for example, would do something like 150 dives a day. Um, when in the competition they don't do three or four. So he said that obviously a stress in the body of 150 water impacts and also like the actual the G-forces of rotation for that and then actually climbing the stairs to the diving board 150 times a day. It's very wow. <laughs> tough enough in itself. So, But the point was that the program developed so that the Chinese athletes would just perform the skill over and over and over all day. And I think in our Western culture, we can't even comprehend what that would be like to to train like that now. I think we're so far removed from that culture. And I, I do sometimes wonder, how do you compete with that on a long-term basis? You know, if they've got athletes that are willing to do that. And, um, and well, I, I think... Olympic guys. I know I did, but I mean, I spoke to like British Olympic rowers and they're doing something similar in that they put in some serious hours. I mean, in terms of rugby, though, I mean, you're not going to get rugby players and football players putting in those sort of hours in order to develop a skill. Nah. Well, I mean, I David obviously definitely knows what he's talking about because he did the, uh, I think he did a couple of years in Beijing before the, the last Olympics. And you know, I've, I've got a, a, a tiny experience of going out to China to work with um, with a sevens team. And yeah. I, I would agree with him 100%. Like the, the level of volume of training that they do, it, it would just make Western athletes' jaws hit the floor. So the, yeah. the daily schedule that we used to have uh, when I got there was we would wake up at six, you would go outside, you would do about 45 minutes to an hour of training, you would then walk to breakfast, eat the breakfast, go back to your room and have a nap for about an hour, then you would get up, you would train for two hours, you would go for lunch, you would have a nap, you would get up, you would train for two hours, you'd go back, have some food, have a nap, and then get up and you do one more hour in the evening. And... If, if you're of the mindset that, that skill is the most important aspect of sports performance, and I, w- I would say yes, um, yeah. you know, you just can't you just can't match that in the West. Now I will say that it has its weaknesses in that the, the girls team that I worked with, I reckon there was uh, 25 within that sevens team, and about six of them couldn't do uh, a bodyweight squat without getting pain. And you would you would kind of say to them how long have you had knee pain for? And one of them was like, oh, you know, only like a couple of years. And I was like, my God. <laughs> so yeah, I think... They said that obviously there's a high attrition rate in that method and I don't think it could even be repeated in the West just because we haven't got that number of athletes in most sports to pick from. And, so, and especially the culture as well. The culture, like, yeah. over there, you're, you're, you're doing it for the Communist Party, you're doing it to, to represent your country. And yeah. the system that they have there is like, uh, oh, you you seem to be very good at rugby. Now you're a rugby player, and you'll say, "Well, I don't want to be a rugby player." And they'll say, "Well, you're a rugby player, and we'll put you in prison." <laughs> and and obviously, as well, if you're doing that kind of program, if you're doing that program and you break an athlete, allegedly. yeah, well, <laughs> allegedly, if you if you do that and you break an athlete, oh, it doesn't matter. There's a, there's a billion more, and that was another thing that just like amazed me about the the athletes that they had in that team, the 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 selection, how perfectly selected they were for that sport was just like perfect. So like within the, yeah. the men's sevens team, 
they're all like six foot four, long limbs, lean as fuck, just like super powerful, great endurance. It's they have got the best raw materials available to to succeed. And I, if they can sort out like what David talked about, just making sure that they look after their athletes a bit better, I think they're going to do great things in the World Sevens and the Olympic Sevens. Yeah, you'd think so. Did, did he say much about the research that? You know, because like, obviously the Russians produce so much like, of the stuff now that seems to be at the foundation of what is useful in strength and conditioning. Um, they produced out under the Soviet system. Is um, Are they sort of doing their own research? I mean, I imagine like 20, 30 years' time, you'd be looking back at their program and going, this is where all that shit was happening because they've just got access to all them athletes. No, I mean, he, he didn't mention that to me and... I, I I was only there just about a week, so I wasn't really there long enough to to get an appreciation of it. I would say because as you know, as a country, they've they've grown so quickly, and S and C's grown so quickly over there. I didn't see any evidence of it, um, and from what I understand, they've they've really taken a lot of uh, well, not a lot, but some of the Soviet ideas and kind of added the Chinese flavor to it, which is obviously if some is good, double it, and then it's twice as good. <laughs> But, but no, I, I didn't see it. Um, I mean, I, I think this, and I, I think you agree with it as well, is that you know really strength and conditioning was cracked about fifty years ago by the Soviets, and anything new that we see now is just like a different twist or a different flavour. For for yeah, for my money, yeah. Yeah. Um, the I was going to say. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. Well. Well, let's. Um, I can't remember what I was going to say. Oh, never mind. Well. You know, let's let's talk about a few of the topics that we kind of dis- discussed the other day that you were you were talking about at St Mary's. One of them was um, way way too much emphasis on off feet conditioning within uh, within rugby circles. Do you yeah. want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this, this is really interesting to me at the moment. Just as a thought process, really, um, and it's it shouldn't be taken in the wrong way that I think that everyone should you know stop doing off feet immediately and start running because that will inevitably cause all sorts of problems. Um, it's just that the emphasis seems to be to take people off their feet whenever the opportunity arises. And this is in young kids as well, although with definitely the kids that I am work with now, they just seem to have a massive load placed on them anyway. Yeah. Um, but even then, like their recovery days are, you know, like get off your feet, do nothing. That's what they're sort of told. Um, whereas I think what we should be aiming to do is really to build capacity to be able to handle the on-feet load. So, like, I suppose it goes back to that discussion about the Chinese and what David Joyce was saying about the Chinese system is that um, you're sort of training them to train. So as a coach of, a, say, first-team rugby team or football team, you're training them to be able to handle the volume of like, mileage they're going to do in the week Um you know, like week in, week out for the course of a season, so they're not breaking down as a result of their training. Um, and you also want them to be build up a high enough capacity that if for some reason they have a really stressful game, it doesn't then mean that they have to be, uh, their training should have to be over too much in the week because their capacity is actually, you know, above what they're, they're generally performing in the week. Um, so, I mean, I was talking to a few people from, I don't know if you you might have a different perspective of this down there. Um, from Super 15, some of the New Zealand teams, apparently they do uh, cross-country runs a day after a game. And that's Mate, that's, we, we do that yeah. with um, our, our regional performance centres in Argentina. Like <laughs> Monday yeah. morning post-game is everyone goes for a half-hour jog together. Um, yeah. we, we do it for, for eccentric um, hypertrophy of the myocardium. But, yeah. but also, I think, um, this this is a big thing for me as well. Reading Science of Running by Steve Magness, um, who I'm hoping to have on. A, a massive part of endurance is not just the the the, the oxygen supply and utilization, but it's also the oxygen demand. And a huge part of fitness is trying to reduce your demand for a given uh, work rate as much as possible. And obviously, what comes into that is things like mechanics and uh, running economy and elasticity and stuff like that. And just repetition is the mother of skill to an extent. The the more you run, yeah. the more you're getting better at that and the, the fit you're going to become. And whilst you get those physiological adaptations with off-feet stuff, you're, you're missing out in a big way if you're if you're not doing on-feet work. Yeah. And I think, to, like, to 
what I was telling some of the kids we were doing with the other night is um, physiologically that is your body's favourite way to recover. So um, the, like the lymphatic vessels don't have muscles within them to work themselves. So they work by having activity around them. So muscular action or blood flow around them helps them pump waste away. So this is the issue with you know like the rest ice or the idea and what all the debate around that is is that by not moving the waste is just sitting in the muscle. So by getting up and going and moving, you're starting that process, clearing the muscles, and then you are getting your fresh blood flow with the you know satellite cells there, fresh to repair. Um, so your low level activity is the best way of recovering, and um, so there's that benefit. But also, like you say, yeah, the eccentric. Both the myocardium, all, all the the cardiovascular benefits of that, which are very different to the, the aerobic power focus and the high output power aerobic stuff that most people do most of the time. I mean, that that's the thing that annoys me about rugby in general is just the fact that, um, probably as a result of the the Tabata studies, is just that conditioning seems to be so so rushed, or people seem convinced within rugby circles that it's possible to reap to train for elite level rugby competition with, you know, 10 minutes of conditioning. And I think, I think that's not the case. I don't know what you think about that. Oh yeah. I know it's influenced from the wider fitness circle, I imagine, isn't it? And, you know, like most rugby coaches, you know, they're not going to understand physiology and, you, you know, they shouldn't really be expected to have the time to even go into that. But, um, they'll be influenced by what they see in the wider fitness world, as most people are. So the craze now is obviously like you know, train as hard as you can for as short as you can, or you know, with, an, with a quote unquote altitude mask. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Yeah, suffocate yourself and sock down your throat. Or something like that. Um, and so they think, if you know, and it's, they they see their athletes working hard, so they think, oh, they're working hard. You know, that's you know that's what we want. So if they're working hard, it must be good. But yeah, when it comes down to a game, you know, they're on their feet for one of the Wasp guys is eight and a half thousand metres in a rugby union game. Wow, that's um, big. Like for rugby union, that is really big. It's huge, yeah. Like six and a half thousand would be fairly, like that's the sort of yeah, high end for a back usually. Um, so eight and a half thousand is low. So that's what they need to be conditioned to do to spend, to be able to handle on their feet. Um, and once you get into the season, the game does act as a as a tool in itself, but um, if you're not ready for that going into the season and you haven't accrued enough mileage um, for the body to be ready for that, then you're going to have issues there. And if you get some injuries early on as a result of that, you know they can play you, you know, prop up for the rest of the season as well, if not longer. Well, I mean, just some uh, some numbers for you. Like I, I was fortunate enough to visit uh, GWS within the, the AFL the other day. I went to their... Well, I, was, I wasn't visiting the team, but I was actually in their facility. And... Um, what amazed me about the, the volumes that they covered in, in, G, in GPS was it's crazy. So the, the record for one game there was 16,000 metres covered in a game, which that is, to me, that's mental when you consider that players are probably spending half the game on the bench because you have an unlimited interchange. So yeah, it's, you, you, know, you go on, you do two minutes, you, you come off, go on, and it's, like, it's all pretty much high-intensity metres. Yeah. But for that, that's... You know their absolute record within a game, within preseason they might hit sixty, sixty-five kilometers to prepare for that how, kind of workload. How long is an AFL game? I don't know anything about it. Sorry. How long is a game? I don't know anything about now, it. I can tell you. I think it's two hours. I think it's uh, three. So uh, I think it's four quarters of um, half an hour each, which is like that's a lot of work to get through. But just to yeah. prepare for that kind of demand, they might hit sixty, sixty-five k a week in preseason. It just goes to show the amount of uh, on-feet work that has to go into preparing somebody to be able to do that. And yeah, like you said, it's games can exert like a, a super heavy toll. Um, one example for us would be um, our, our game against New Zealand in the championship last year in Argentina. So this was game five for us. And, um, you know, I, I thought going into the game that we did a good job of getting the boys ready for the game. So our, our kind of yardstick that we use to, to assess readiness is a standing broad jump every morning. And yeah. our last big training day before New Zealand, we, we got 11 personal bests out of a squad of um, 30. And we had, we had nobody come up with low readiness. The boys were ready. But they played that game. And New Zealand, obviously, they're, 
they play the fastest in the world, best team in the world. Um, we didn't get blown off the park, but we lost. And obviously, the next week, the numbers just dropped off the face of the earth. So that would be, a, you know, maybe an area of improvement for us is that we're not just looking to be able to meet the demands of that game. We're looking to be able to meet the demands of the game and then not have it push us through the floor the next week. Yeah, that's a really good point. Although we did, we did win uh, after that. That was our first championship win the week after. But you know, we had to, we had to ease off them so much. I think we trained. We trained once in the gym, and we, we made it optional that week. So we, we did no weights that week. Yeah, that, like you say, the, the amount of mileage they're covering there, for, like, and uh, I, and when I started thinking around this as well, it was around you know like, um, long distance runners and how much they'll cover in a week in terms of running volume. And granted, they're smaller than rugby union guys, and that's where the, I think the rugby union argument for it comes from. Um, but they're covering, you know, like eighty kilometers plus a week in terms of long distance runners, um, and they're doing that generally like running on the road uh, in a lot of cases. So it does help if you weigh uh, fifty kilos. <laughs> yeah, it does help. Yeah, um, but if the human, you know, the, the human body's capable of handling that, and then but then also that you know the stories coming out of New Zealand them doing some cross country runs on the day after a game. Um, generally, the running volume. Um, the southern hemisphere sounds like it's higher and there's less of a gym focus as well um, and more on a, on a running focus than right here so well I mean I've, I've definitely heard that from, from English boys that have gone over to play in New Zealand and uh, a common theme from them is obviously like you said it's just volume they just train you know two hours a day every day a lot of volume and obviously sometimes that's, that's they don't spend it in the most intelligent manner but you know, success leaves clues, and probably that is a massive um, reason. I think one for the level of skill development that Kiwi players have, but also, like you said, the the fitness that they have and the speed of the game they're able to play at. Yeah, that's it. So um, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about individualization. We were on the phone before this, and you talked about the need for for ind- individualization for positions and individual players within a program. Do you want to talk a little bit about? your approach to doing this and maybe why it's so important within uh, a strength and conditioning program? Yeah, so, uh, from, I mean, what I've been talking to people about this lately is uh, the conditioning side of this. So, um, the, and if you've played different positions in rugby, you'll sort of know this feeling. The difference between playing in the uh, backs and the forwards is vastly different. How, Massive. You know, how hard you're working and how often you're working and especially a winger so uh, like a winger will you know they do they might cover uh, quite a lot more distance because they're sort of you know slowly moving from side to side a little bit more especially like an outside centre or fullback maybe um, but in terms of like continuous you know like say high intensity like commas um, work they're they're not doing so much and it's very different the demands of the game for them than from say a back row player or a front row guy um, so then how you condition them for the game should, should therefore be different because what's happening to them is very different so for example um, with, wing, with my wingers I always did a lot of tempo work and yeah. it wasn't at first for the tempo, tempo itself it's because that facilitated us to be able to then focus on speed on our high days yeah. so um, the tempo wasn't there for the conditioning aspect initially but then I put some GPS on the guys while they were doing that and then you know like looking at GPS from a game so a wing will usually do about 600 to 700 say high intensity metres a game which could be classed as above 60% of their top speed and you're you're using um, individual zones on GPS rather than absolute numbers I used individual zones yeah but when you look at the research it's actually absolute numbers so I hate that uh, (laughs) yeah me too one of the um I think it's six meters per second, or say twenty-one kilometers an hour. Is I think usually what's used. Um, so on those absolute terms, the wingers are covering six to seven hundred meters per game, high intensity. So that's above six kilometers an hour or twenty-one kilometers an hour. Yeah. So then you put it on a tempo session. So you say you set their speeds below seventy-five percent. So you might be doing hundred meters in fifteen, sixteen seconds. Um, and you know, like your, your press ups, crunches in between, and then I do it on a rolling seventy second clock or a rolling eighty second clock if I haven't got a heart rate monitor. Yeah. Um, 
and then even like a lower volume tempo session, so two lots of eight, say. Um, so 1,600 total meters, but 12 to 1,300 meters would be classified as high intensity on the same scale as what's used in those absolute games. Yeah. Um, so how that's then affecting the muscle and what the muscle can handle is huge. So then if you think of in a week, then if you structure your week high-low, high-low, and you've got your speed sessions in there, uh, so say we're looking at pre-season, you're not playing a game. So you've got three speed days there, and you've got two to three tempo days. What your body's getting exposed to is, you know, consistent maximum output, and then the conditioning effect that that has to be able to handle repeat maximum outputs over the course of a week. And skill development um, too. Yeah, and skill development in the movement, and then the tempo. I think the skill development from the tempo, the efficiency, efficiency improvements you see in how the guys move so quick within like a week or two of doing tempo you see an improvement in how they move and how effortless it looks to run at that higher intensity and then the effect of that then on the game for a winger and how they can just cover that, those distances over and over again because most of the time they're not going to be operating above 90% top speed most of the time it will be 75 to 85% of their top speed as they're sort of coasting around but they need to have been exposed to speed enough that when they do do it in a game they're not going to you know, like seize up and the body goes oh what the fuck are you doing here you haven't done this for a long time um, but if, if the volume of to be able to withstand high intensity work is, is high then it's almost acting as like a robustness for the muscle to be able to handle what's going to happen in the game so it's like an injury prevention tool as, as much as anything else yeah I think you know for me like with top speed training you know max velocity training people tend to look at the GPS in rugby and say you know, oh, we're, we're missing our, our top speed by five kilometers an hour in the game. And they use that as a rationale to never train top speed. But for me, yeah. I think it, that's precisely why you should train it. Because on that rare occasion where you do find yourself in space and you open up and hit top speed, that's not a scenario that you want to find yourself unprepared for. You know, you don't want, yeah. you don't want the hamstring to go and stuff like that. And also the, the carryover to, to, to sub-maximal mechanics as well is, is very, very good in my experience for top speed. So um, yeah, let's uh, let's flip this now and say you're not training wingers, you're training the fat guys in the front row. How would you adopt a different approach to train them uh, specific to their position? Yeah, so for the for the guys in the scrum who are generally involved in you know repeat rocks, repeat tackles, uh, say take it to the extreme in your back row where they're making low, like say up to fifty. I mean Haskell made something like um, I think twenty eight tackles in the game a couple of weeks ago. I'm sure he let um, everyone know about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he did. <laughs> um, and then, I mean, Rucks, like, I think Rucks, like 20, 30 Rucks a game, um, if not more, then, you know, they have to get up off the floor. They have to um, make short sprints, um, you know, the up and down, especially, I think, needs to be accounted for. So that's where you're sort of, you know, you're like what I call mad style work in that only because it comes from Style um, tests that you set it up. It's like your 15 on 15 off sort of stuff, and it's all about that aerobic repeat, like training the aerobic system to be able to repeat efforts, um, and you know up and down off the floor, changes direction, hitting a bag. That's where those guys um, you want to improve them. So how I tend to look at the players is like, what is their defining factor as a player? So with a winger, it might be to run faster than anyone else. And if they can run faster than anyone else, then they're less likely to get caught and they're going to score more tries. Yeah. For a back row guy, and then this differs between individuals again, so it's position specific, but also individual specific. For a back row guy, they're defining things. So like take Haskell, he's an aerobic guy. He's an aerobic-based guy. He's not, he's, high, he's not a high output athlete in terms of his power. Um, he's, he's the sort of guy that makes 15 to 28 tackles a game hits lots of rocks and his work rate is just non-stop so someone like for example so, from what say like Sam Jones yeah Sam Jones another great example just an aerobic athlete um, aerobic biased athlete and um, you're going to make them a better player by taking them from 15 tackles consistently in a game to 18 tackles consistently in a game and um, the same for a winger you're going to probably affect him if you can just make him run a little bit faster so he's less likely to get caught he's more likely to break a line uh, but then some a guy like Wadey who's more of a, a mover then essentially what I'm saying is that you should really focus on people's strengths I think you have to bring up people's weaknesses but 
by improving their strengths is where you're really going to get return. Because you're not going to turn a marathon runner into a sprinter. Especially in the, you so, know, the later stage in the prep. I think, like you said, you, yeah. you're probably going to start training or addressing weaknesses, but eventually you have to be training them at what they're good at. And this is something I agree with you massively on, particularly when it comes to implementing um, special strength exercises for our guys. The, yeah. the starting point for us is if we had to write down on a postcard what is it that this athlete does better than anyone else uh, yeah. on the field? That's that's our starting point, and that's where we start designing exercises from. Yeah, you talked me through that before. I thought it was really good, the two, ex- the two, two areas for each athlete. Yeah, I think it was if, – if I was much bolder, it would probably be one, but I, I just kind of hedged my bets and decided, you know, we're going to do a, a primary role, secondary role. Um, I mean, especially with our system as well, it's still evolving, so that may change down the line, but we're at a point now with our system where we're pretty happy with it, and actually in Argentina, the boys train with the same system uh, from the age of 18 all the way through to to senior level. We just make uh, tweaks at different levels, but that's the, the great thing about with the game still being in its infancy where we are, is that we have complete control over every um, player uh, from the age of 18 up until Pumas. Uh, which you don't yeah. necessarily get in England because you got, you've got coaches fighting each other and so on. But we've, yeah. we've been really, really lucky in that regard and hopefully it's it's starting to improve performance on the field. Yeah, definitely. I think it will. And, and then, so, going back to the marathon sprinter analogy, you're not going to turn like Haskell into Ashley Johnson. Ashley Johnson's a line break. He's a very, very powerful athlete. He's a beast. And the way he, he plays the game is, you know, short sharp runs every now and again breaking lines um, Askell is obviously going to break lines it doesn't mean that aerobic guys aren't going to break lines it just means where their strength base and how they're set up how they're made up as an athlete and you just have to accept that you're not going to turn those guys into something completely different from what they are um, but obviously then you still have to be aware of your lower limitate your lower your minimum requirements and make sure that's covered for everyone as well so <laughs> You know, rugby strength and conditioning is actually quite complicated. <laughs> yeah, it can be. <laughs> I would say as well, special exercise for Haskell is to uh, step out of the way of the post next time and then you'll score the try. Yeah. So you also, uh, we mentioned to one another earlier, you know, the importance of uh, a speed focus in pre-season. And I absolutely agree with you here. I mean, my kind of opinion is that um, everybody talks about match fitness um, and I think that's real. You you can get fitter sometimes, or you you can improve conditioning by playing the game. But there's no such thing for me as match speed. So you're never going to get faster just by practicing or playing the game. And you you have to strike while the iron is hot and really train speed within preseason. What's your philosophy yeah. on that? See, so, yeah, I really believe that the, the initial parts of preseason, and maybe you have like your, your two weeks. Ideally, you'd have you know plays or away they do their sort of general prep in the off season but most of the time you know, they have a really long season they're just away when they're away they're away and um, you can send them away with some stuff you'd like them to do but you'd hope they'd come back in some okay condition so maybe you'd have like one to two weeks at the start of the season where you do your general uh, prep you know you like you're more of your your long slow distance stuff um, and you know like maybe tempo weights just to get some volume into them but I think you need at least a six week block early on in pre-season that is focused on speed and improving speed because it's the only time in the season where you can really focus on it unless someone gets an injury um, but by doing that so by improving that maximum output then you can get good improvements in speed within six weeks if you if you focus on it by improving that maximum output there you then know it's, it's then fairly easy to maintain that through the season which are like you've got one or two speed sessions a week depending on how your weeks are structured um and I, I, I do think that across the board for all positions because you know, like the concept of the speed reserve improves the top and everything underneath is going to improve or become easier. Work below becomes easier. So we go back to um, you know some of the, the GPS stuff or the high-intensity meters um, for wingers. If they improve their maximum speed, then that 60%, that was their 60% before, is a lot easier than it was previously because now it's actually a smaller percent of their absolute speed so it's no longer their 60% um, so I, I really believe in that for the whole team but having said that to some people that aren't necessarily ready for that to do just speed and you have to accept if you have, maybe you've got athletes early on in the program 
where they just can't move, they don't move very well at all. So while speed is the focus, it doesn't mean that everyone's just doing speed. Somebody might actually improve their speed better by focusing on strength for that period, but the ultimate outcome is that you're looking to make them faster. You just have to then be a little bit sensitive to how you go about doing that. Yeah, and I mean, it, 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 might even be, uh, it might even be tempo that gets them faster, but you, yeah. you need to be doing something that's getting them faster. It might be dropping 5 to 10 kilos. Like, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a, a funny example from, from my career. There was, uh, like you said, players turning up ready at the start of preseason to be able to go into intense training. Um, when I was at the Roosters, we, uh, it was like the prep was super, super short because we had the, the Rugby World Cup. We had seven guys playing the World Cup final. And um, so they didn't come back to training until the 13th of January. And our first competitive game, was, which was against Wigan in the World Club Challenge, was like mid to late February. So we had like six weeks to get them ready. <laughs> One of the boys who played in the World Cup final rocks up. I was like, how are you feeling? He goes, yeah, I'm feeling good. I said, so what, what did you get up to um, in your holidays like prior to coming to preseason? And I thought he was going to say, I've done a bit of training, done a bit of this, done a bit of that. He's like, well, I went to Hawaii. And I was like, right, okay. He goes, and uh, this is my routine every morning. I got out of bed. I jumped in the swimming pool. I swam over to the bar and I drank a beer. <laughs> and this guy was like 130 kilos. And I was like, right, you're not doing speed work yet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, that, that's like your general, you know, sensitive to what everyone's able to do and not throw people in the stuff they're not ready for. That, that's the But then it, when you look at that, it's the same preseason. You could follow that high-low structure. So within that system of speed focus, you'd, you'd naturally have tempo in between. Um, and then for building the volume of that, you can have a whole team that's you know with your backs sort of completing, say, three lots of ten. Um, so three thousand meters of tempo, two to three times a week. So their high-intensity volume of the week that then they, they you move away from the speed, then you go more to your specific conditioning and um, then trying to make it you know like more applicable to the game. Uh, for each position but their volume that they've acquired early on in being able to handle these high loads and high intensity high volume and high intensity is a is a huge protection against whatever's going to come at them during the season yeah mate totally agree do you want to talk a little bit about um youth athletes because obviously with the stuff that you're doing with london wasp at the moment you're uh, you're working part-time with them you've also got a good experience of working with young athletes in your private stuff and I just want to know kind of what your philosophy and approach is to training those guys and how it would differ for um, for adult rugby players. Um, yeah, so I think every every time you approach anybody, it's it's, uh, it's a specific problem, but it's the same thing you're looking to achieve. You're looking to find the appropriate stress to affect an appropriate adaptation. I think it can be all, all down to something that simple. Um so with youth athletes, you just have to consider that they're not capable of, they don't need as much stress to get an adaptation and they're not capable of handling as much stress. So that's where you, my starting point is. But a lot of people are against using like jumping exercises, speed exercises with, with kids. Um, my philosophy around it is that if you don't send the stimulus to the body while it's developing, it won't know to develop what you want it to develop, to develop into. Okay. So, if like, so take one of the, the private guys I work with. Like starting off, he did start off like anyone would, even with an adult athlete. If they're incapable of handling high intensities and high volumes, you're starting them off on the basic stuff. So it's the same for kids. So, you mean, you, of course, you start them off on your body weight work, and um, you know, like get, make sure they can like, the, the movements good, so you can make sure they can land. You make sure they can move well. Um, but there comes a point where, even at a young age, if they started training early enough, they'll be ready to lift weights and they'll be ready to move, to jump, and uh, as in like not just small jumps, but intensive jumps like broad jumps, um, or, or, or however, even like repeat broad jumps. Um, as long as you're sensitive to their ability to handle the volumes, it doesn't mean that they. That there's no reason why they can't tolerate that. And what it then means you're doing is you're sending a signal to the body that look before you even hit puberty here you need to be powerful. So you better find some substance in there that's going to give us what we need to be powerful and to move quickly. And then when the body then hits puberty, it's a lot more likely to go, okay, we need this much stuff to, you know, um, here to be able to produce power in this way. And I think you see that in sort of like, you know, like classically the 
kids that grow up on farms that are strong, you know, they they don't have the ability to be very very strong at a young age or to put on masses of muscle or masses of weight. Um, but their body's getting sent a signal from a very young age. To, you know that you've got to carry stuff, you've got to lift stuff, you've got to move stuff. So then when they do hit puberty, they just seem to grow into freaks because they've the body's just like right, we've got to be this sort of person who does this sort of thing, and they've been doing it so long that that's just what they're going to be. So I think um, that's sort of my philosophy with kids. Like, what what, are they, what do you want them to become? And I think in most um, athletes, in most sports, you want them to be powerful. You want them to be able to to be fast. So that you need to do enough of that stuff that the body knows to adapt to them. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Like you mentioned earlier, like the the high load that a lot of youth athletes go through. And yeah. you know, when I was in the academy at Wasp, like I was gobsmacked. We we, we used to do. Um, minutes times RPE, which obviously Dan brought in. And I think yeah. at the time, an average uh, training week for the first team was about 2,500 units. And yeah. I remember looking at those numbers. We had a kid at um, Tunbridge who was doing 5,000 a week. And that's because he was he was England 18's second row. He was England 18's uh, discus, javelin. He was playing for his school. He was doing all that stuff. And I think that's like you said, the, the emphasis for those athletes needs to be on quality of movement and speed and power because... I've I've yet to see a, a, a high level youth athlete who needs more conditioning because, like you said, they're chronically overloaded. So that that's one yeah. thing that I took away from training young athletes, definitely. And did he? And how, how did he handle that? Did he always seem tired, or was he sort of fine? Well, he he was difficult to, to track because he was at a boarding school, and we we didn't really get the time that we needed to him. But there was another kid within the system who followed a similar pattern but he actually went to a school in the day and we had access to him um on those tuesday thursday nights and this this kid was a beast like when he came in we did a little bit of a screening for um for middlesex union and um when he was 13 years old he did 13 um dead hang chin-ups really controlled i think he had a broad jump that was like two three when he was 13 years old and he he was just a, a machine and he was coming in and training and he, he was progressing because obviously he's got a lot of talent. Um, but then obviously the issues started to come in. He, he's got to play for school. He's got to play for club. He's got to play regional and he's got to play for wasps. So we sat down with the parents and um, we explained that um, we wanted him to do less and quality and all, all the stuff that you've talked about. And we decided actually that it, because the other, the other teams didn't want to bend necessarily or they, they wanted their piece of flesh out of him, it was going to be us that actually did less with him. So we said to him, you know, we don't want to see you for three months. Go off, work on these things when you have an opportunity, but we don't want to see you. Go and rest and actually put some effort into developing and recovering. And the, the feedback that we got from him at the end of the three months was, like, obviously he'd grown a lot since then, but he's like, wow, I feel awesome. He goes, I didn't know how bad I felt until I actually took a break. And then his acceleration physically just accelerated massively. I mean, he lost a little bit in skill. Um, yeah which, you know, that was maybe the price we had to pay, but physically the difference was massive for him. And I think that, like you said, again, it's just about you, you have to give the, the right load at the right time to the right player. Yeah. And um, it was interesting. I was reading, um, I was rereading some of Cal D stuff actually and um, talking about uh, his triphasic training. And at the start, he's talking about the Bulgarian athletes and how, you know, the importance of stress. And he, he sees that coaches are sometimes... Um, too cautious with how much they stress their athletes and the best he was talking about the Bulgarian program as you know they became the best Olympic lifting program because they stressed their athletes the most and uh, they was on this massively high volume you know like full day training lifting so you you, you wonder do you consider that with, with kids like can they actually handle more than we think and I know it's a dangerous dangerous way to go and um, I, I definitely err on the side of caution of it but um, you know, he's actually all this volume does it do them a favour because when they back off from it like what you saw with that guy there they're then actually able to adapt and you know grow from that so well, it's, um, it's just, it's just uh, my question in mind that wants to question everything is uh, is uh, does where, where does that go you know how, how far does that go absolutely agree with you I think one of the funny things I read about that Bulgarian system like I've I like I know Cal and I've met him when I went out to the States and he's like, he's a friggin' genius as well. But a funny thing that I read about that Bulgarian program of weightlifting was the reason they had, cause they're famous for doing like five sessions a day. 
like an hour each. And apparently one of the reasons that the coach wanted to implement those five sessions a day was because he had young uh, young males on his weightlifting team and he knew that the devil makes work for idle hands. So he just wanted to keep them busy throughout the day so they stayed out of trouble. <laughs> Good idea. Mate, um, we've, we've pretty much hit the hour mark there. So um, let's just uh, wrap it up. Want to say thanks very much for um, for taking part in the podcast. Obviously, first episode, extremely low quality. Um, if anyone wants to follow you or uh, find you online, where should they go? Uh, I'm difficult to find online because <laughs> I'm not on there much. But um, I'm not. I'm not got Twitter. I, I think I'll probably get it because there seems to be a lot of good conversation and you know a lot of good research gets banded about on there. So I probably will get that. Um, I've just sorted out my website. It is um, areti-performance.com, which is A-R-E-T-E-performance. Um, and, you know, there's nothing on at the moment. I need to get, like, put my finger out and get some content on there, really. But that's there. I can be contacted through the website, um, and I probably will, you know, get on Twitter eventually. Mate, that's awesome. Thanks very much. No worries, mate. Cool. Um, so, first episode over. Uh, make sure you keep coming back to rugbystrengthcoach.com and uh, we'll have some more episodes up for you soon.